Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Q&A Podcast. Our desire is to know exactly what God's Word says by looking at questions through the lens of Scripture. We want to interpret the Word of God properly, correctly, because the Bible tells us that God's Word has been inspired by Him, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. This is TruthQuest Podcast, and welcome to today's Q&A. If you have any questions, then go ahead and write them out. We want to welcome you on our different platforms. If you're listening to this on YouTube or watching this on YouTube, make sure to share, ring the bell, subscribe, so we can get this out to as many people as we possibly can. Also, if you're um, watching on Facebook, we want to welcome you. You can also share it there. If you're joining us through the podcast, we hope that this is a blessing to you. Uh, we take time to answer questions that are submitted through the lens of Scripture. We've got um, a couple questions preloaded, but I got one that I want to start with, and we'll go from there. The first question is um, came, comes from a while back, which was, is it okay that I don't go to church during COVID? It was uh, two or three weeks ago that this was submitted. And here's the thing. We know that the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 that we are not to neglect the gathering of ourselves together, excuse me, as is the habit of some. So we get into, we can easily get into a habit where we don't go to church. And it's important for us to be in fellowship for a couple of reasons. Number one, that it is koinonia, it is fellowship. We are around other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And going to a fellowship where we develop relationships, where we our gifts are being used to minister to one another is extremely important. The study of the Word of God is important. Uh, accountability is important. Um, however, there if there comes a time to have to break that, many churches during the Dark Ages didn't attend church during the, the Black Plague. And um, if you are vulnerable, if you don't feel comfortable going to church, then I don't think that God's going to condemn you for not going to a gathering in a time where a gathering could be dangerous. You just want to evaluate your own heart. You want to ask yourself, what is the reason that I'm not going? And if it's to try to stay safe, then that's great. If um, it might be just that you're getting in the habit of staying home and watching online, we're living in a time when that's very easy to do, although I don't know that it's really good um, because there's so many, so many false teachings uh, that are online. And you've got to be able to distinguish between them. And if you don't really go to a place that you can trust and the Word of God is being taught, you know the people who are there, you know the character of those who are there, um, then it's hard to know, can I trust this or not? The more you learn God's Word, the more you know what the Bible says, the more you're able to look at things online and go, this isn't right and, or this is right. And you have to constantly be judging things that are said. Uh, you can find certain things that you that you are comfortable with, that you agree with, I don't think you can ever put your guard completely down. Only the Word of God is 100% accurate. Um, so I tell people, hey, look, when you're receiving the Word of God from me, then do so enjoy, but search the scriptures to make sure that these things are true. So yeah, it is okay during COVID if you aren't going to church. Uh, but you want to evaluate why you're doing it. Look at when you can get back into it. Find a way to really be in fellowship uh, with one another. Now, if you are submitting a question, I'm going to ask a couple of things. Number one, that you put question or question mark or a cue in front of the question so that I can identify it. Second, read it out a couple of times before you submit it so that you know what it says is clear and that I can easily make heads or tail out of what is being said. I want to thank you guys for being here. Daniel, good to see you. Daniel is moderating today. It's um, good to see you guys. If you have any questions, then as I said, just go ahead and submit them now. We have a question, first of all. Let me go ahead and get rid of this one here. And uh, we'll bring in our question from Jari. Jari has a question. Uh, Jari says, question, is it okay to continue to pray for someone? Does God ever get tired of us praying for the same person over and over? Thank you. Uh, people get annoyed when we are made in his image. Does God ever? Um, I don't know whether I can speak as to whether or not God ever gets annoyed. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know whether that's a characteristic that we can apply to God or not. Um, I don't want to speak for God. Uh, but as far as your question, Jari, 
Uh, is it okay to pray for someone over and over again? Uh, Jesus said, don't pray with many words thinking that you're heard or, or don't, don't pray long prayers thinking that you're heard by, for your many words. Uh, the key there is that there are people that believe that by chanting or by speaking certain things that they are, uh, that they are somehow praying fervently. Kind of like the Hindu prayer wheel. When you spin it, it goes up and up and up to God. So the more you can keep talking, maybe like a filibuster with God, the more you're talking, the more you're able just to finally get God to answer your prayer and do what you want him to do. Um, and that, of course, is not the case. But as far as repeating prayers, Paul prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. Jesus prayed three times um, that the cup would be taken from him. Hezekiah prayed even after um, Isaiah had told him that he was going to die from the illness and God spared him from the illness. Um, I don't think that God ever gets annoyed with us if we are fervently praying. We just don't want to be like automatic. We don't want to say a prayer over and over again just to say it, thinking that it's, we're going to be heard by our many words. We want to be fervent when we're asking. And I think if we're fervent and we ask God for the same thing every day, in fact, when we think about a daily prayer here, um, we, we're told to ask, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, there are things that we're told to pray daily, and I think God wants us in fellowship daily. And if we're asking for the same person, I yeah, I say pray until you get an answer. Keep praying for that person. Pray diligently. And God's not like, you're wasting my time. I got so much else to do. I'd like to get after it. God isn't like that. Um, but pray it fervently. Pray it meaningfully when you when you pray something. Really mean what you pray and God will honor the prayer of faith. The Bible says you have not because you ask not, so it's better to err on the side of asking than not. But God also says you do not receive when you ask because you ask amiss, wanting to spend it on your own pleasures. So you wanna have the right heart and the right attitude when you're asking God for something. All right, so thank you very much, Jari, for your question. I really do appreciate it. It's good to see you, I hope you have a great day. Uh, we have, I'm going to just kind of go back here, make sure that we don't get <clears throat> any other questions that come in here that I miss. I think because we have different platforms that sometimes the questions come in late on one platform and I end up missing it. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit today. It may take me a little longer in between questions uh, to get to them. Uh, we have a question from Psychman. Uh, Psychman, good to see you. Uh, Psychman says, um, is the Trinity introduced in the first three verses of Genesis, Genesis 1-1? The Father, Genesis 1-2. The Spirit, Genesis 1-3. God creates through his word, all creation through Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. Uh, thanks, psych man, I, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I, I think that you could do it that way. Um, John 1-1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. It goes on to say that everything was made by him, for him, and through him, and without him nothing uh, was made that was made. I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring uh, that passage up here on the screen. Maybe we'll even take a look at a couple of them here. Uh, so the first one I want to bring up is the one that I just quoted. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Or literally, as the only begotten, it says in the Greek. So we know that the Word is Jesus, and the Word here is called God. Then it says in verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That includes himself. The Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus was the first born among creation, and then he created everything else. But there's nothing that was made without him that was made. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. So I believe that that, that um, you could say, I mean, we know that the, the we have God, Elohim, and I think it's all the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are represented there. The Word of God, um, God there. And a little bit later on in verse 25 in Genesis chapter 1, where it says, let us make man in our own image. Um, there you've got, sorry to keep, uh, let me go ahead and get this off here while I, come back to, um, why well, get to another passage up here and ready to go. Um, but yeah, let us make man in our own image. And we see, well, let's see. Uh, and, and, and so we see the complexity of God there that people say, well, that was God talking to angels or talking to a council. No, he says, let us make man in our own image. 
So whoever the us is there, they have creative power. So it's got to be God, the, the God who is uh, one God. Um, so I'm looking here at Colossians. I'm trying to find um, the right passage here. So this is, let me go ahead and bring you in for this here, psych man. So this is Colossians chapter one, and this is thought to be an early creed from the church. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, meaning like a firstborn, oops, I didn't, I don't have you in the right place, hold on. Okay, so um, he is the image of God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn meaning that he has the right of the firstborn. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. By him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. This means he created all angels, principalities and powers. This means he created everything. There's not anything that was created that Jesus didn't create. That's our savior. That's who came and died on the cross for us. And I think that you absolutely are correct, psych man. Um, that you do find the Trinity in the first three verses of the Bible in that Jesus is the Word of God and you have the creation taking place there. Thank you very much for your question. Uh, Psych Man, good to see you. Hope you have a good day. Uh, we, um, If you have a question for us, then you can go ahead and submit that. Uh, we have a question here from Alex. Uh, go ahead and write the word question in front of it, read it a couple of times, and then submit it. We're going to take the rest of the hour and take a look at your questions today through the lens of scripture. Uh, Alex says, good to see you, Alex, by the way. Alex says, if marriage vows are stated before God, does this put you and your partner in right status marriage before God, or does it need to be through government? Where is that biblical? All right, so when is something a legal marriage? Um, when, when we marry people, we make sure that they have a marriage license. We want them to go down to the state. We want them to get their marriage license and they want to bring them back. We're going to sign it once the, once the service is done. And the reason that we do that, Alex, is because we want it to be legal. We don't just want it to be, you know, you're standing before God and saying it. We want it to be legal. Uh, there's reasons for that. Um, as property is shared uh, because if things if if things fall apart and for us to think that Christians will never end up in divorce is, is naive it protects everybody that's in there I don't think you should go into it expecting divorce obviously but we want it to be legal because we want both people to be as protected in this marriage as they can plus we don't want the devil to have any opportunity to be able to try to persuade someone and say well, you know what, you were married in the church, but you weren't married legally, you weren't married by the state, and so I'm out of here. And that provides the enemy an opportunity to be able to get in there and, um, and tear things down. Um, I think biblically, where is this biblical? I don't know that the Bible ever talks about marriage in, in a sense of, it doesn't, a government being over it, but the Bible tells us that we should submit to the governing authorities and pray for them. And our authorities, if we're going to get married, has us getting a marriage license, and so we are submitting to the authority um, when we are uh, when we're going down and getting that marriage license. I realize that you can be legally married if you live with someone for a certain amount of time, and you can file for a legal marriage, and that you guys can be legally married. Um, but that's the opposite, where you're not standing before God and getting married. So we want to see people doing both of those: standing before God and um, getting married and my if if I were sitting down and talking to someone who had not who had, had gotten married by a pastor um, and had not been married legally I would have them pursue that legal aspect I, I think it's important and I think it, it doesn't lead for opportunities for the enemy to be able to get in and cause problems and I think the enemy is looking for every opportunity and we don't want to give him we know the schemes of the enemy. And we don't want to give him any opportunity to be able to come in and tear us down. All right. So thanks, Alex. I appreciate your question. It's a good one. And I know people think about these things um, from time to time. There are people that do the opposite as well. They go and stand in front of a tree, say their vows before God, and they want to know if they were legally married. And the answer to that is no, you're not legally married. Um, like I said, you can go live together, but you've got to deal with God. And the Bible says, 
Um, be not deceived, God is not mocked. All right, so we have a question here from Wayne. Um, Ray, uh, Wayne, good to see you. Good to have you here with us. If you're here for the very first time, we want to welcome you. Wayne says, how do Christians today view Halloween? I told my 11-year-old that it's not celebrated by Christians and read the Wikipedia definition, and it says that it came from the Christian faith. That doesn't seem right. Um, yeah, I don't know what the foundations of Halloween are. Uh, I do know that the question that you have, how do Christians today view Halloween, is going to depend upon the Christian. They're gonna, there are definitely some Christians that are like, this is obviously wicked. You got vampires and demons and ghosts and, and, uh, and, 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 and how could God ever be glorified with someone celebrating Halloween? Then you have other Christians that say, well, this is a gray area and everybody gets to make up their mind. And when I'm dressing my kid up like a vampire, I'm not, I'm not glorifying the demonic realm. We're just having some fun with some stuff that's scary. And I think that this is one of those things where each person has to live their own conviction. You've got to look at what you do and live that conviction. And if you feel like this is something that Christians should not celebrate, then don't do it. I know the Jehovah Witnesses don't do it. Uh, they don't celebrate Christmas or Halloween or any of those things. Um, and I've known Christians who don't and who won't celebrate Christmas because they say it's pagan. Um, I don't think that these things are rooted in paganism, by the way. I'm not saying that there's not some kind of connection on the dates, but like Saturnalia, when you go and you study Saturnalia, it's not even on December 25th. And it's radically different. It's not what people do today. What I do in celebrating Thanksgiving or Christmas or the resurrection, uh, I do from a heart that loves Jesus and wants to serve him and follow him. And that's what's important. So I don't know um, what the Wikipedia uh, page says as far as the definition that came from Christian faith. I'd love to read that. And, and maybe do a little bit of research on it as well and find out whether or not it comes from the Christian faith. I know there's a lot of things that are done down in South America and in the Caribbean, along with the Catholic Church, Santa Maria and some other things that do come from a combination of voodoo and Christianity. And I'm wondering if there isn't something like that here with All Saints Day. I'm just, I'm just not familiar enough with the foundations of Halloween. So I don't want to give you an answer because I would just be guessing at it. All right, so, but I do believe that it's one of those areas that are um, that are that are a, a, a doubtful area that we're not to argue over, but we're to live our convictions. And one person does one thing, he does it to God. The other person does thing, another thing, and he does that unto God. And who are we to speak against the Lord's servants? All right, Wayne, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, it's good to have you here. We have a question here from Andy and Tanya. Andy and Tanya says, can a, practice in home, can a practicing homosexual be a Christian? Um, so you want to, I want to think about just exactly the way that you ask this. Can there be someone who is a Christian who is tempted with homosexuality? And the answer to that is yes, right? Because people are tempted Jesus was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And so having the temptation isn't the sin. So then could there be a genuine Christian who commits a homosexual act? And the answer to that is yes. And the answer is that yes, that can be forgiven by God as well. Um, can you be practicing it? Which is the question you ask. And the Bible says that everyone who practices such things cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And um, there's a couple of places where the New Testament talks about homosexuality being wrong. And I want to go to, I want to see if I can find um, the lust of the flesh here really quick. I think I, think I can find it here. Um, yeah, let me go back here. Christian liberty. Um, so I'm looking for the lust of the flesh out of out of Galatians um, five. Is evident. Okay. Um, yeah. Here we go. All right. Let me go ahead and bring you in here, and I want to show you this. 
uh, because I want to look at the key, one of the keys here. And this is, um, but if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. Earlier it said, if, you, if you're led by the Spirit, you will not fulfill, or you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness. Those, those, all four of those words are sexual words, okay? Adultery, we know what that is, having an affair. Fornication would be sex outside of marriage. Uncleanliness is any kind of sexual sin. Lewdness is, is the feeling you have the right, kind of like licentiousness. Then idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentiousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresy, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, the like, which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's the practicing of sin that creates the problem. The only unforgivable sin is the constant rejection of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, you want to be I mean, you want to be really careful when you start uh, talking about these kind of things and answering these kind of questions because you don't want to give people a license to be able to sin. We want to give purity to God. And we want someone who was a homosexual and, and has a desire towards the same sex to be able to come to God, have a relationship with God, and know that they can be in a right relationship with Him, keeping things right. But also, the same warning would go out to someone who's practicing homosexuality, to someone who's practicing adultery, or someone who's practicing fornication. All of this is, is sin, and we need to make things right and not practice them. And so I think that that is the answer. Can a practicing homosexual be a Christian? If he's practicing homosexual and he receives Jesus as a savior, he's gonna repent from his homosexuality. So I think the answer to this ultimately is going to be no. I know that's a long way around for, for talking about it, but if uh, you can't have a homosexual that has a relationship with someone else, is in this lifestyle because God's going to convict them of their sin when they're born again and they're going to change and there have been a lot of people who have changed. All right, so thank you, Andy and Tanya. I really appreciate your question. That's a good one. I like when we get hard questions. That's definitely a hard question. I don't think we should shy away from things that are difficult and hard uh, to try to understand. All right, so I'm just kind of looking through here for another question. Uh, um, we're just taking one question per person right now. If we run out of questions, we'll go back and we'll pick them up again. All right. So we have a question here from John P. John, good to see you. Uh, John says, question, I always thought that the removal of the church coincided with the removal of the spirit or the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. It looks like it will occur right as he is revealed possible uh yeah john so uh let me go ahead and get there this is the passage i am teaching on tonight and in our service it's called the great falling away and the last days and um we're talking here um we're talking about the 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 great apostasy in the last days and what that means and if the great falling away could mean something else. So what you're talking about here, John, is the restrainer. And um, you go to seven and eight. So let me go ahead and bring, put the scriptures up on screen for you here. And um, here we have 2 Thessalonians 2. We're going to start with verse seven. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only him, he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So this is the church that restrains. It is the Holy Spirit within the church. Some believe the Holy Spirit will be removed and it's the Holy Spirit who is the restrainer, but people are gonna get saved after the rapture of the church during the tribulation period. So this is not the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit within the church. It's the work of the church that restrains until he is taken out of the way. And then it says, and the lawless one will be revealed. Now this is the same thing that it says earlier about the great apostasy. If we go back here, sorry to, get you guys dizzy if I if I'm going back to the beginning here uh, Paul says in verse 2 not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled by spirit or by word or by letter as if uh, by us as this as though the day of Christ has come so the day of Christ is corresponding to the day of the Lord um, he's, he makes mention of both in this chapter and they thought they were in the tribulation period 
Somebody wrote them a letter and told them they were in the tribulation period, that somehow they had missed the rapture or, or who knows what they told them about it, but they thought they missed it. So he says for them not to be shaken in mind by letter or anyone if it's by us. And then verse three, he says, let no one deceive you by any means. So this is a deception they had. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. That word for falling away is apostasia. And in, if you look up most Bible translations, they translated falling away or rebellion. Um, and we do know that in the last days, men are not going to tolerate sound teachers, but they're going to stack up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. First uh, Timothy chapter four. And so there is going to be a rebellion in the last days. However, this falling away, this apostasia could also mean to depart. It's a departing is what it is. And it's also used to speak of someone departing, actually leaving. And so this could be the rapture of the church for the day will not come unless there is a falling away first or, or, or the departure comes first. And there's a definite article in front of it. So if it is a rebellion, it's not any rebellion, it's the rebellion. If it's the departure as in the rapture, it's the rapture of the church, it's the departure. And then it says, and the man of sin will be revealed. One of the things that people think often about this chapter is that it says that the man of sin has to be revealed first before um, the tribulation period, but it doesn't say that. The only thing that has to happen first is the falling away, right? We read it again, it says, unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. The falling away comes first, this is either the rapture of the church or the rebellion, and then the man of sin is revealed. There hasn't been the departure, so they are not in the tribulation period. There hasn't been the rebellion. There may have been rebellions, but there hasn't been the rebellion. I don't know what I believe about whether this is a re, uh, the rebellion or whether it is the departure as in the church. But I do know once you get to verse seven, which is the verse that you brought up, that it says, for the mystery of all lawlessness already at work, only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's the rapture of the church. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So that's the same formula you find earlier that the, the departure happens first and then the lawless one is revealed. Here the restrainer is taken away and then the lawless one is revealed. So I think it's possible that this is talking about the rapture of the church and um, the, the revelation of the lawless one. So let's get back to your question. Make sure we got that answered, John. Thank you for your question. Uh, John says, I always thought that the removal of the church coincided with the removal of the spirit or the restrainer. And I think that's the case. I think that we are the one who restrains. Yes, it's the work of the Holy Spirit within us, but the church in the Holy Spirit, we restrain the, the destructions of, of babies in the womb. We restrain sin in this world, uh, sin towards mankind. Uh, we restrain um, a divorce and so on and so forth because we stand for the things that God wants us to stand for. That's the church. And when the church is removed, imagine what this world will be like. If we are restraining, you probably had the experience where someone says something and then you're there and they say, I'm sorry, or they change their behavior because you're there. Well, that's the restraining power of the Holy Spirit within you, which is gushing out of you and affecting people around you. So thank you, John, for it. Um, it's, you say um, in 2 Thessalonians 7 and 8, it looks like it will occur right as he is revealed. Yeah, or before he's revealed. So you have the church taken out and then the man of sin is revealed or you have the rebellion and then the man of sin is revealed. Um, so um, maybe not quite exactly corresponding with each other, but one and then the other. And if it is a rebellion, then you've got the rebellion taking place and you've got the church leaving the restrainer, uh, the Holy Spirit in the church leaving and then the man of sin being revealed in both of those. All right, so thank you very much, John. Uh, good to see you, hope you have a good day. Uh, great question, by the way. So um, it's again, good to see you. We have a question here from Amanda. Amanda says, uh, where is the line between collecting items and idolatry? Also is collecting not Christian because it's accumulating worldly possessions. Um, I think what matters more than if you're collecting something is what's going on inside of your heart. So if I am collecting something and I treasure it above everything else, and people can do this, 
they treasure items above everything else, then that is idolatry. I don't have to collect too many of them before I can take one thing and, and lift it up that is above everything else. And that becomes idolatry. As far as collecting is stamp collecting idolatry or coin collecting idolatry or someone who collects um, beanie babies <laughs> to, to refer back to the 90s, um, are, are they idolatry? And I don't think so. Um, as far as accumulating worldly possessions. So Jesus said, don't stack up treasure here on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but stack it up in heaven. And I'm trying to think of where, uh, James. James says, tell those, maybe it's First Peter, it's First Timothy. But anywhere, somewhere in the New Testament, it says, tell those who are rich not to trust in the uncertainty of riches and be willing to share. So if you find yourself in a place where you are rich, you have extra than what you need to just live, then you need to be willing to share and not trust in the uncertainty of what riches. And as far as accumulating possessions, um, yeah, it can get, it can certainly get out of hand. It, yeah. I mean, at some point you wonder how much do people need, uh, but someone who is rich and may have a lot when they come to Christ may not have to sell everything they've got. Just like we didn't sell everything we had when we came to Christ. But there is a question about what we are doing with that which we have that may be excess above what we have. So being rich isn't wrong. Jesus did tell the rich young ruler to sell all that he had, but that was to show him that he had covetousness. We do get some other direction about wealth. And um, so collecting possessions, Mm, I think we could get le really legalistic really fast with this. I think each one of us ought to search our heart for the things that we have, whether or not we have too much. I do know there's been a time in my life um, when I really felt like I needed to pare back. Like God was just saying to me, get rid of some of your stuff. And um, I went ahead and got rid of some of it. And uh, maybe that would need to happen again as well. All right. But thank you very much, Amanda, for your question. Um, yeah, it's idolatry if it is above God. If it's you put something uh, that is above God. Uh, we have another question from Albert. Albert says, hello, Pastor. Hi, Albert. Good to see you. Um, as we pray for forgiveness, we often neglect asking God to allow us to feel his love in the moments, probably out of unworthiness. Instead, we commit to avoiding future sin. All right, let me see if I can figure out exactly what you're asking here. Um, Albert, um, as we pray for forgiveness, we often neglect asking God to allow us to feel his love in those moments, probably out of uh, unworthiness. Instead, of, instead, we commit to avoiding future sin. Um, so, Albert, I'm sorry. I'm not sure exactly what your question is here. Um, maybe the question got cut off. Um, I'm not sure. I'm just let me sure. I'm trying to figure out if you're asking if by not asking for his God to allow us to feel his love. So I, yeah, I don't know, Albert. I'm sorry. Maybe if you can resubmit your question, um, then I can get a little bit better. I just don't see the question in there. Uh, it may be that it's really obvious, and people are right now telling me this is the question. Um, but I just don't. Um, I just didn't get it. All right. Okay, so we have part two from Albert. All right, so part two. Um, but we know we can't do anything in our own flesh apart from God. How important is it that we ask God to let us feel his love in strength uh, and strengthen us to love him and to avoid sin? All right, thank you, Albert. Two-part question. Um, so um, how important is it to ask God to feel his love? So I can't think of any passage that it tells us that we are to ask to be able to pray to feel God's love. Um, I know that God's word is true and that God loves me, whether I feel it or not. That's not to say that you can't pray for it because you can. I'm just saying I don't know of any passage and maybe it's out there, but I don't know of it. Um, that is kind of a commandment that we pray that we feel God's love. I just feel like it's not there. And so I don't know that that is connected to avoiding sin. I think that if we make things right with God, that if we confess, we make things right, we ask him to renew the inner man day by day, 
we abide in Christ and God's word abides in us and he's going to change our desires. We love God and we delight ourselves in the Lord that he changes our desires as well. And um, that if we walk in the spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So I think that if we follow those, those are the way that we get sin out of our lives. And may God allow us to do that. Delight yourself in the Lord. And delight yourself in the Lord today more than you did yesterday. Like right now, from this moment forward, just say, I'm going to delight myself in God. And um, when we ask for, for the forgiveness, realizing how tremendous that forgiveness is that God has given us, it's just awesome and um, how, how wonderful it is. I think David said in Psalms 32, you know, how delightful when your transgression is forgiven and your sin is, is removed from you. What a great joy it is and understanding that. And I think that helps us to avoid sin. I think if we're looking at what I can do today to avoid sin tomorrow, I know I'm gonna be tempted. And so the Bible says to pray, lead us not into temptation in the Lord's Prayer. So I'm gonna have temptation, but I wanna pray that I would not be led into that temptation and uh, that I wanna prepare for it. I wanna make sure I have things right between me and God and that I, I, I've got my mindset that I wanna serve him and I don't wanna live in sin and I have those things right and that helps us to overcome sin. So I hope that's helpful. Albert, I'm not saying you can't pray to feel God's love. I just think sometimes we put too much emphasis upon how we feel rather than the truth of God's word. Whether I feel God's love or not, God loves me. And um, I understand that if I know and understand God loves me, and that could be faith by his word, God loves me because the Bible says God loves me. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. So we know that Jesus has this great love for us as well. So I appreciate the question, Albert. Hope you have a great day. It is good to see you. All right. Uh, so looking for another question here, uh, you can, if you have a question, you can write it out, question, and then clearly write your question. Read it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense. Um, so we have a question from Tyler, and Tyler says, my agnostic friend asked me why God didn't kill Satan at the start of creation. Would love to hear your answer. All right. Thank you, uh, Tyler. I appreciate it. So these are questions that not only agnostics or atheists bring up, but they will bring them up a lot. Um, it's also questions that some Christians have it from time to time. It's like, okay, if Satan is such a problem, why didn't God get rid of him in the very beginning? And these kind of questions are always hard to answer because you're trying to answer for God when we're not told why. And so that's difficult, but we can kind of, um, look at it and see why we might think that that would be the case. Um, God created Satan. God will one day take care of him, but God's going to let sin run its course. God allowed there to be a celestial fall. God allowed there to be a terrestrial fall. And God is allowing both of those to run its course. And um, God very easily could have created no Satan, knowing that he was going to fall created a world where there wouldn't be any sin. We would all be like robots that we would know him, but God created a world where we have a very real choice. And he created a real world where there is evil, which is the opposite of the goodness that God is. And if God is good, then there is evil. That evil is in the world. It would be great if it was removed, but I think that God has a plan for suffering and God has a plan for evil. And the fact that Jesus went to the cross and suffered and evil was involved in that, and God brought good about from it, God's got good that he wants to bring about from evil and from suffering. And if that's God's plan, then that's God's plan. So I hope that's helpful. Basically, you would answer it by saying, if God planned to use evil and suffering on the cross as a great example, and God uses evil in the world and suffering in my life to bring about work. Paul said that I might know you in the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering and that we would overcome the evil one. Uh, then that's God's plan. That's God's desire that even though this evil is in the world, that we can live for him and live wholeheartedly for him and overcome uh, that evil that is in the world. So God had a purpose and God had a plan. That's what I think for 
um, for Satan. And that plan was to bruise, crush his head while the heel of Jesus was being bruised. Um, what I find with atheists and your friend might, or agnostics, your friend might not be that way, but when you answer one question, then they just kind of move on to the next one. And um, it may be, Tyler, that you just heard this and thought, yeah, that's a good question. I'd like to know what that is. And I think the answer to that is that God had a plan, that he wanted to use the evil that came from the terrestrial fall, celestial fall, in the, the terrestrial fall, and that as we work our way to God, we are navigating this world that has evil in it, and that was God's plan all along, and God's going to use evil out there and are overcoming it to do his will and to do his plan. Hopefully that makes sense, and I didn't repeat myself too much as I was trying to talk my way through that and, um, and clarify it, but I really do appreciate your question, Tyler, and it's good to see you. Good to have you here with us on our Truth Quest podcast. We have a question from TC1. TC1, good to see you. TC1 says, is there anywhere that tells us how Micah became a prophet in 742 BC and what his background is? He speaks like a lawyer. Uh, and Micah, so it's been, a, it's been a while since I taught Micah. And I, I certainly did background on that book when I taught it, but I haven't taught it in a while. And I think that you may very well be right. Um, I, uh, I, would, I would love to take some more time to be able to look at it. Um, and I'm sorry, I just won't have a question, an answer for you here today uh, because um, I need to look it up. And I was just trying to see if I could find something quickly on it, and I'm, I'm not able to. Um, I'm sorry, but I just don't want to answer off the top of my head or try to remember what I learned about it before without stopping and really studying it. That, um, that needs to be. Um, I would start, if I were you, with Wikipedia, understanding that Wikipedia can have wrong stuff on it, and, um, and go from there. And if I remember it as well, I'll try to do a little bit of research on it. Um, you can also go to commentaries on Blue Letter Bible, Go to Micah, go to Blue Letter Bible, put a Micah 1, then go to commentaries, and there are a lot of different commentaries on there. You might be able to find out some information about Micah. If I had time to do that today, I would do that here with you, um, but I don't think that we're going to be able to do that. TC, but I, I appreciate uh, your question. Uh, looking for another question here. You can write the word question in front of uh, your question and then write out your question two or three times, then look at it. Uh, so we have a question from Annika, and Annika says, question, what is the Leviathan? Psalms 104.26, Job 3.8, Job 41.4, Isaiah 27.1. Uh, Let's go to the one in Job, and we'll take a look at that one. So that's Job 41, I think, uh, 1. Uh, yeah, so let's go ahead and go here. I'm going to go ahead and put the scriptures up on the screen for you. Thanks, Annika, for your question. It's good to see you. Uh, so, um, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw like a hook? Uh, will he make many uh, supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you pay, um, play with him as a bird? Or will you leash him from uh, will you leash him for your maidens? All right, so God's talking to Job um, about, he's at, at the end of the book, about can you even understand these things? You're, you're acting like you know these things, Job, but there's so many things you don't know. And one of them is, can you go out and capture this Leviathan? And um, the Leviathan certainly seems like a sea creature. Some believe it to be an alligator. Um, some believe that it might be a larger version of a crocodile or an alligator and there there may have very well have been larger versions that are out there um, but the behemoth is also mentioned here in Job and the behemoth seems to be a dinosaur um, and this will go back to whether or not you believe that dinosaurs roam the earth when, with men do and there is some evidence that that was the case and so the Leviathan may very well be a sea serpent that today is extinct that wasn't extinct prior to the flood. It certainly was a large creature. 
that you didn't want to get up that you, you, you that you couldn't just go get a hold of. Yeah, it would be difficult for you uh, to capture it and to bring it in. And so I think that that's the reference to um, the Leviathan. And um, it may very well be that the flood did create the fossil records and that all of these dinosaurs were alive when men were and that they went on the boat when they were small. Um, I've shared with you before that I'm not quite 100% set on young earth or old earth, uh, but I do believe that this is a, a strong possibility. And it seems that Job is the oldest book written. He's talking about the Leviathan. He's talking about the behemoth, which seem to be creatures like dinosaurs. And that could very well be evidence that there was something uh, to uh, the fact that, hey, there were these dinosaurs that roamed the earth when men did as well. All right. Thanks, Annika. I really appreciate your question. Uh, we have an, a question from, uh, from Yvette. And so Yvette says, how does God deal with narcissists? Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar were narcissist characters in the Bible. Thank you for your question. Um, yeah, narcissist, um, Narcissus was a Greek god who was so good looking that he found a pond in a cave that had a great reflection in it and he looked at how beautiful he was and he looked at it himself how, and, and, until he died just because he couldn't tear his, himself away from his own beauty. And this mythology is of course a great picture of what narcissism does. It wants to put out yourself, it wants to be seen, it wants to be noticed and um, God brought Nebuchadnezzar down low and Nebuchadnezzar turned him into an animal, it made him go insane and eat grass like an animal for seven years. And um, a lot of, you talk about Pharaoh being another example of that. And yeah, I think there are obvious problems with being a narcissist and never the way that God wants it to happen. And uh, there are struggles that individuals have with, with um, narcissism as well. Uh, might be something that we all are, are living in with social media that we want to be on social media as much as we possibly can. We want people to see us. When we put up a post, we're like, who's liked my post? And we end up looking at it until we die. We're, we're just looking for that constant feedback. We seem to be living in a day that is promoting narcissism instead of giving for other people in good godly character. And uh, we know there are people who are ministry as well who are narcissists. And that's always a problem when that happens. And, um, uh, I think uh, God does does indeed deal with the narcissist. It's someone that just thinks of themselves. That's what they're thinking of. They're not really thinking of the work that they're supposed to be doing, but they are just constantly wrapped up in what they are all about and what they believe. Thank you, Yvette. I appreciate your question. Uh, that's a great one, and we find a lot of that. We have a question from Adam P. about um, Matthew chapter 11. Adam says, question, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist hears of Jesus's miracles and teachings. What does he have? Why does he have his disciples ask if Jesus is the one to come when John already baptized him knowing who he was? That's, that's a really good question. So um, John sends his disciples to Jesus when he's in prison by, by Herod and says to Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus says, go and tell them what you've seen. The poor have the gospel preached to them. The blind are seen. The lame are walking. And he gives them all the miracles. He says, go tell them these things, which is going to tell John that he indeed is the one. Uh, because in their day, there was a certain expectation when it came to the Messiah. And I think that John had that expectation, that the Messiah would rule and reign. There are still people today that believe that there are two Messiahs. One Messiah that will rule and reign and one Messiah who will suffer. Some of them believe that Jesus was the suffering Messiah, but whether or not he's the ruler or reigning Messiah, they have yet to see. But Jesus himself said that he was coming back and going to rule and reign. And so he is the second Messiah, or he is the, 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 he is one Messiah that came his first coming to suffer and he will return in order to rule and reign from the earth. So there's not two messiahs, but there's two distinct, um, uh, the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ that are distinct. 
um, which helps us to really understand that. Um, so John, I think, was just wondering, why hasn't anything happened yet? Why hasn't Jesus taken care of Rome? And maybe John still had those expectations. Who knows? Um, maybe he just didn't think Jesus was moving soon enough. We might know a truth, but when it doesn't happen, we can begin to doubt. And I think that that's exactly what happened to John the Baptist while he was in prison. I think it was a difficult time for him. It wasn't an easy time. Somehow we just think of John the Baptist as being steely and strong and able to take anything. But in the middle of it, he had some struggles and difficulties as well. And um, so he sent Jesus this question and Jesus responded to him out of love, as I think that he does with any of us who bring questions that we might have to God. Uh, God responds to us out of love. It's the same reason that many in the crowd would not receive Jesus as their Messiah because he didn't rule or reign. And people today, still, Jewish people who will not receive Jesus because he didn't come and rule and reign, and the Bible says the Messiah is going to come and rule and reign. And Jesus one day will. So thank you very much, Adam, for your question. I really do appreciate that. Uh, we have, I'm looking for another question here. So hopefully I'm not missing um, your questions today. I know it can be, I don't, I, like I said, I don't know if it's the way they knit them together when they bring them all together here uh, into these questions, but sometimes you go back and find out some questions that I missed. And if I missed you, sorry about that. I'll, I'll go back and try to make sure that I catch them uh, before we are done today. So we have another question uh, for JG. JG says, so just to clarify, the second beast in Revelation is the false prophet, right? Thanks, Pastor Robert. Um, I, I'm going to need to go. Um, I know we looked at that last week. And I just don't want to say something that's wrong here. Uh, Revelation, was it, um, where was the false prophet at? Um, I'm trying to think of the passage. I know we talked about it and we might even have looked at it. I think we looked at it and read it last week. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to need to look at it again. Before I give you, um, JG, before I give you a, a question, uh, an answer to that question, I need to look at the passage again. All right? All right. So I, so I see Revelation 13, 11. Thank you very much. So I'm going to go ahead and look that up. Revelation, thank you for writing that in. Revelation uh, 13, 11. And let's see if we can figure that out as we take a look at it. All right. So Revelation 13, 11, I'm going to go ahead and bring you, uh, bring the, uh, put the scriptures up on the screen for you. So this is the beast from the sea. Uh, then I stood on the sand and of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having heads and 10 horns and on his horns, 10 crowns and on his head, blasphemous names. Now this beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and, and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth to speak great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. So this is not the false prophet, um, JG. This is the Antichrist. So it is the Antichrist who is, um, who is who's, who's struck in the head and, and is mortally wounded and dies and is given a great mouth to speak great things. So I'm going to say that this second beast is the Antichrist. I'm going back to 12, we've got the woman and we've got the dragon in 12. We've got Satan thrown out of heaven in 12. Um, we've got the woman persecuted by the dragon, um, which is, and then we've got the, 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 the beast from the sea. The beast from the sea is the Antichrist. So I'm not sure, JG, if I said last week that this beast was, I, I don't think I did, but if I did, I was wrong, all right? I don't think I said that this beast was uh, the false prophet. The, there is the false prophet that is represented, and um, and and, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what passage speaks of him. I'd have to take time uh, to be able to look that up. But I do appreciate you giving that question. Hopefully, that's helpful, JG. I appreciate that. Uh, let me go ahead and go back to our question here. So, um, 
the, the second beast in Revelation is the false prophet, right? Um, or did I just read the first? I just read the first one. All right, okay, let's go down to the beast from the earth. All right, so the first beast in Revelation is, um, is the um, Antichrist. Let's go ahead and bring you in for the second scripture, which is the beast of the earth. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth who had 10 horns uh, like an, a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercised all authority over the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performed signs. Uh, and, and yes, so this, this, this beast, the second beast in Revelation 13, 11 and on is the false prophet. All right. So sorry about the confusion there. I don't know if I confused you guys, but in, in chapter 13, the first beast is mentioned is the Antichrist. The second beast that's mentioned is the um, false prophet. And then you've got the dragon in the chapter before this that makes war against the woman who is Israel. All right. So uh, thank you very much, JG, for clarifying that. Um, I was reading the wrong section in there. Hopefully it didn't cause uh, too much confusion. So I'm going to go back um, up and just kind of take a look here before we end our uh, podcast. I want to just go back and make sure that I didn't miss any questions uh, that are here. Uh, I did receive a question, kind of why I'm going through here and looking. Um, all right, looks like I may have missed. No, got that one. All right, so I do have another question here that I was asked, and I just want to go ahead and bring this in as a final question. Um, and this comes from Barbara. Uh, Barbara left it after um, on one of our uh, on YouTube in one of our questions, and she said, "Is the Catholic Church changing the Lord's Prayer?" And I did a little bit of research on this today, and it looks like that they are petitioning, at least at some point, trying to change the Lord's Prayer so that it will say something about not being led into temptation, because it is the devil that tempts, but God who doesn't. Remember the Lord's Prayer says, lead me not into temptation. So we're asking God not to lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So a couple of things about this. First of all, it's always a mistake to change God's word, right? And the Lord's Prayer is God's word. And Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So it's the devil who tempts. And so reading, praying, Lord, don't lead me into temptation, doesn't mean that that God's the one who tempts you because God can't tempt anyone nor is he tempted nor does he tempt any man the Bible says but he does lead us in our lives and we are to pray that God would not lead us into temptation so that as God is leading us maybe there's things that we that we need and God takes us into temptation like he did to Jesus for a purpose or a plan God's got his purpose and plan in it maybe it's because there's discipline coming in our lives in certain ways or God wants to reveal some weakness that's in our lives, so he allows us to be sifted like wheat, like Paul was. Um, but I do believe that that, is a, that, that's a, that that is a problem. Now, the Catholic Church, they believe everything orthodox when it comes to Christianity. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in all of the creeds. Also, it's taught by some, maybe even by the main church, that you're saved by keeping the sacraments. And that's a problem. You're not saved by keeping the sacraments. You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And so there are Catholics that have made a commitment to Christ and they trust in Christ and not in the sacraments and they are saved. And they will put tradition as high as they put scripture so that they believe that both are, 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 are valid. And there's a passage in 2 Thessalonians where Paul says, keep the traditions that I've given to you while I was with you. But whether by epistle or by word or epistle, he says. But Paul is... An apostle and he's bringing doctrine he's officially bringing doctrine and so the tradition that he gave them was official doctrine the church tradition is not official doctrine and i believe it's a problem and so that's why we will have a difference with catholics often and why arguing with them is not worth anything unless you're really going to go back and deal with tradition have bible the bible be the ultimate authority then you're not going to have people praying to mary to pray for them you're not going to have them asking saints to help them because the Bible doesn't say any of those, all of those come out of tradition. So Barbara, thanks for your question. I do believe that some are changing uh, certain, that that there there is a, a move within the Catholic Church to change it. When you look up their questions about it, 
they are really, and maybe already have, started to pray something that is radically different. All right, so thank you again, Barbara, for your question. I really do appreciate that. And um, thank you guys for joining us on this Truth Quest podcast. I appreciate all you guys. I hope that you stay close to Jesus. We have a service in two hours. We're going to be talking about 2 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to look at the Antichrist, when he is revealed, and what he does when he is revealed. It's an incredibly good passage. I look forward to seeing you guys there. I hope you guys are doing well. Stay close to Jesus. Make sure that you walk with him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I appreciate you guys.